to the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you haven't joined us before, we're passionate about all things internal medicine and helping you become the best tech you can be. We'll be discussing interesting internal medicine diseases, how to work closely with pet parents, and how to become the go-to tech in your practice. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back, and thanks for listening and making commitment to your learning. We hope that you are doing well today. I'm one of your hosts. I am Yvonne Brandenburg. Jordan is off this week. <laughs> I got one of two of my onco peeps. It's Miss Danny DeCormier. Hey, girl. Hello. Poor Jenny um, got hit by some crazy head cold thing. So she she was like, you don't want me there. <laughs> We're like, go take some, go take some resting and some chicken noodle soup and feel better. So yeah, not just allergies. Me, I'm stuffy because of allergies. So, you know, sorry guys, I'm a little sn- sniffly. <laughs> In the same boat. There's that weird weather thing that's just pushing across the country that I think is messing up everyone's allergies. <laughs> Like all the pollen's like, just dump now because it's windy. Wait, it's cold. What am I doing now? Yeah. <laughs> Tis the season. Mm-hmm. We'll get to do it all again. In like the month. <laughs> right. Oh my God. So true. <laughs> uh, so we are continuing our Onco series. This week, we're talking about TCC or transitional cell carcinoma, not just an infection. <sighs> That's when it comes to us and we're like, well, mm, internal medicine says, mm. uh, yeah. And then we do the things and then send it to you. <laughs> I was going to say, this is one that I swear almost always starts in internal medicine. Yeah. It is so rare that, um, it'll be referred over unless there's, you know, someone who does ultrasounds in a hospital, or if there's a traveling internist that does ultrasound. Yeah. Usually these hit internal medicine first, for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> definitely. Uh, just quick housekeeping. Um, just, just remember, uh, we are working on getting race approved. I can't wait for that. Um, that'll be super fun to have these Onco ones race approved for you guys. Um, but for now, you could definitely still use it as self-study um, and, you know, get more familiar. I feel like self-study, it's one of those things where even if you're a baby tech, right? Like just listening to the words, like eventually it like percolates and like, you know, bruise in your brain and like, you know, maybe five, 10 years from now, you're like, oh yeah. <laughs> you know, could take that long. Sometimes that still happens to me. I'm like, oh yeah, that thing that, you know, in school that I learned about. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm using it finally. So yeah. I think that happens to me regularly. <laughs> how much I allergy, like hated biology and microbiology and was like, I'm never going to use this. And not only I didn't use it a ton, I'm not going to lie throughout, like, you know, I had to learn some for school, learn the little things. Oh yeah. Don't tell me that's biology. (laughs) I did. I used it for my VTS because, you know, understanding how the cancers actually occur, how the cells replicate, how the chemo works Mm. at which phases, I was like, wait, what? Oh no, I like biology. No, (laughs) I know it's, it's funny. Like I remember um, when I was in school and also when I was teaching 
like we had to learn so much hematology right like mm-hmm. you're just like the the hematology section of school always seemed like the biggest section mm-hmm. and I and I felt bad because at the time I had probably when I was teaching I'd probably done eight years in general practice and I was like mm, I don't really do this ever <laughs> you have to know it for your boards. It was one of those, you have to know it for your boards, but you're probably never going to use it thing. But then I got into specialty practice. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, no, no, no. Okay. So I look at cells a lot. <laughs> and I'm like, this is why I had to know this. And honestly, like, I think, I think even in general practice, I think it would have been better for me to have understood it. Um, so I could, you know, check when, blood work looks funky, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, anyways, stuff that you learn in school that eventually percolates. Plus is one of those things. (laughs) And even if you are an assistant who race doesn't matter to you, right? Like that Mm -hmm. it it is what it is, but the self-study part, I know that I got my passion to even make it this far when I was an assistant because Mm. people would tell me, oh, these things are race approved and it's learning and since I didn't know a lot of it yet anyway, yeah, I just turned into a sponge because I realized I would sit there. I remember, oh, ACVIM, our, our technician track is amazing now. And it did not yeah. used to be the case, I will say, because there weren't as many of us to be able to keep teaching additional things. And so they always told me to go sit in the doctor lectures and I wouldn't understand anything. I hadn't gone to school, (laughs) but I could tell that it related to what I was doing every day. And so I just kept trying. And then I would come back and ask my technician and my doctor, the questions of the things that I didn't understand. And they were of course shocked that I went to something about gene sequencing (laughs) or osteosarcoma, but you know, uh, it was what it was, but then I learned more and, and could relate it because they would relate it to what I was doing. And then of course I decided, wait, what's this VTS thing? Oh, I have to go to school first. Oh, okay. So I'm going to go ahead and get that license and then I'm going to go for VTS. So nice, nice. Yeah. I kind of had that experience uh, when I was in school. I want to say it was like my second term. So like should not have gone to it, but uh, I went to this uh, CE and it was anesthesia and um, it was like I don't remember if he had a VTS in anesthesia, but he worked at UC Davis and was brilliant, just like super brilliant. And he was talking about things like Mac values. And I was like, what the heck is Mac value? Like I had no idea what any of it was. And then I remember when we started learning about anesthesia, I was like, oh, that's what he was talking about. (laughs) And I'm like, got it. Now it makes more sense. But it was just so funny. I was like, yeah, Mac value of SIVO and ISO. Yeah, apparently those are different. <laughs> I was like, I don't know what he means by that, but okay. <laughs> it was so funny. But anyways, self-study. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so we'll be talking about transitional cell carcinoma. And yeah, I think this is, you're right. This is one that internal medicine and onco are sometimes hand in hand on this one. So um yeah, so we'll get started and I'll let you talk about all the cancery parts. 
<laughs> All right. I will definitely pass that baton right on over for you to talk about <laughs> your internal medicine part. Right. Um, but I can get started. So it is transitional cell carcinoma. And a lot of things now you can see like TCC. I'm not going, I'm probably going to call it TCC from here on out because that's yeah. so much easier to say. Um, but you can also see slash UC and that is the mm. urophilial carcinoma. Huh. And I know it, it can be interchangeable or a lot of times you see them together now, like TCC slash UC. So that's what they are. They're essentially the same thing, but it's just because of ones in the urothelia. Yeah, they're the same thing, but we're using both of them. So when we are talking about transitional cell carcinoma, these are our bladder tumors. Most of the time, um, yep. it accounts for about one and a half to 2% of all canine tumors our bladder tumors. And then specifically TCC, those are like 75 to 95%. Um, right. All of those bladder tumors are TCC and that's for dogs. We can see these in cats. Most of the information I'm going to tell you is about dogs because it is like a lot of things so much more rare in cats. Yeah. Um, however, 92% of feline bladder tumors TCC. Hmm. So just keeping that in mind. I'm trying does, to think if I have seen a cat with it. Well, you know, I had one because I'm an onco VTS. <laughs> right. I know. So I'm like, oh, oh. I don't know Crazy. if I know of one, but I, that doesn't mean I haven't seen it. And unfortunately mine was her third cancer. Uh, she had Aww. GI lymphoma and then we found her incidental uh, pulmonary carcinoma. And then several months later, she started having UTI blockage symptoms. And so we went looking and we're like, no joke. Of course Aww. there's a bladder tumor. Why wouldn't there be one? Right. Because she was, oh gosh, she was 17 though. So it was not like she was a young kid. So she <laughs> lived all a pretty the tumors. solid, like, right. She, she lived long enough to just start collecting cancer. So uh, she, she was a good little girl. <laughs> So, um, so transitional cell carcinomas, these are epithelial tumors. And I do want to say they've got a lot of risk factors and some of these, there are some misconceptions out there on some of these. And so I'm going to make sure to be very specific when I talk about, I know I was a little scared by some of this. I was like, Oh Lord. (laughs) Right. So there's obesity. Um, because we're, you know, why isn't that a risk factor for like everything? It sure is. Um, and industrial environments, which aren't really a big deal. That is more in humans that they can see that. But where we get into this are the insecticides and the herbicides. So lawn treatments um, can yeah. actually be a risk factor for developing TCC. So this is these smaller dogs that are running through the lawn. So that is why a lot of times, if you do use treatments, they should not be going on that lawn at all until it has dried or, um, ask your company if you're using that for specific pet information, or even better yet, don't use those (laughs) and try and go with something more natural. I think, Um, yeah, (laughs) I think there's more information coming out on these that it's like, Ooh, and it's, it's 
phenoxy herbicides. I have no idea which ones those are or not, but just so you know, so if they are non-phenoxy ones, you can absolutely do your research, look into ones if you're doing your lawn, those should be fine. It was really those phenoxy ones that they had seen the correlation with it. And then no clue what brand that is. So do your mm -mm. research. (laughs) Not, not, I don't do lawn treatments. I'm not going to lie. My lawn is uh, really pretty with weeds. Um, it's it's very gorgeous. (laughs) My dog goes out, he comes back in. We're good to go. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, and then insecticides. So yes, I am talking about topical insecticides for flea and tick control. However, I'm talking about the old school ones, not more recent ones. So even more recent by Fipronil, I mean, Frontline's been around for quite some time at this point. So I'm talking the ones from before that. So if we're going with something Mm. real old, be very careful because that absolutely is a risk factor for this. But we're looking at Fipronil um, or even like our revolutions. Those are totally fine and not known to be risk factors. So if you do have people saying like, I'm not using those because it can cause this, they are not talking about the ones that we use nowadays. So keep that in mind when you are looking at these. Wait, I do have oral cyclophosphamide. And there's also, there's also prescription versus non-prescription because who the heck knows where some of these non-prescription and what in the heck is in there? Because I'm like, I don't even know. I mean, don't get me started on my topical non-prescription <laughs> sergeant well, just Hart. soapbox I'm for like a, say it. Uh, soapbox Don't. for a half second mm. there's a reason why there's prescription and non-prescription and i know we're preaching to the choir on this one because you guys i'm guessing most of you work in the clinic you understand the difference between a prescription and non-prescription <sighs> i'm not gonna lie though so i know that frontline i believe is non-prescription nowadays um, you can actually just buy that at PetSmart. Um, it's the flea stuff. When you start to get the tick control, that is where a lot of the prescription comes in. And that one's okay. Stay with some of those main brands, ones that your vet, the one that you work with, recommends. So keep make, make sure that you're recommending. I, I feel like this is everyone's soapbox. We all know what brands <laughs> cause big problems. We have seen them. Um, we've seen what those cats look like that have the pyruthrin toxicities, um, mm. that can get caused by some of these, all the neurologic stuff that happens. Maybe you haven't seen it and you don't want to. So don't recommend that. Don't use right. it. Um, it's not fun, pretty, even when they make it through it, like they can survive, but gosh, it's not fun. So stick with those recommended ones. Um, for sure. Yeah. And please don't go back to old school ones. Cause then you definitely increase their risk for bladder cancer. I'm just going to throw that out there. Um, yeah. oral cyclophosphamide. So that is a chemotherapy also known as cytoxin that can predispose them to this. It's less of a concern in our veterinary patients because they are not generally on that for long term. So mm. it doesn't usually get to cause that in all honesty. Um, and then the very last one is that smoking is still that major causative factor in humans. We don't entirely know, um, the role it plays in our veterinary patients. However, Hmm. it can cause the GI lymphoma. It is believed to be a risk factor for this. Um, so just keep that in mind with our cats, they groom. So stuff that sticks Hmm. to their fur, they groom it off 
and ingest it and everything goes through their system that way. So keeping that in mind, um, smoking around our pets is not a good idea. So when we are looking at our TCC prognosis, um, I, I did mention for cats, there is a study done on cats. It was about 20 of them, which honestly, I think is a pretty big number considering how many wow. cats get this. So, uh, but they did not break it up between like different types of treatment. It was all cats that had it with or without treatment. Our um, MSD was 261 days. So about Ooh, a little thirds, less than a year. Yeah, it's three quarters of a year. So um, it's not a great median standard time. So, well, and I think I'm the, sorry, that's survival time, not standard. I said standard. <laughs> I'm thinking time change. I'm medial standard. That's because today's the time change. That's why. Right? Um, and I think this is because I think the, 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 where this is the problem is because they get blocked, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Usually that's, that's the, it, that's like the line in the sand. <laughs> so what's really crazy. So for cats, it's a little bit different. And I'm going to talk about that um, at a different spot is that the blocking and location for cats is, or or, that's more for dogs. It's a little different, right? Because cats, right. We've talked about cats. cats cats Exactly. (laughs) So they do whatever they want. (laughs) Um, for dogs, we have them right? Dogs have a better prognosis. So when we're looking at the ones that are surgical and they're able to have surgery, either partial or just debulking, uh, they do have a one-year survival rate of up to just over 50%. So like 55%. And that survival time is about 86 to 142 days. If we are combining our therapies, right? So we're doing surgery and various chemotherapy, it extends it from about six months up to a year. So 180 days up to 365. And then, oh gosh, when you start just adding all of those different types of therapies together, you get varying survival times, especially the different type of treatment. But usually that one year is about the maximum that we are looking at, unless it is a full surgical removal and we are able to cure them. And then we consider Mm -hmm. them cured and there's not much data afterwards because it's all been removed. So just keep that in mind. Uh, Unfortunate early detection possible. So a majority of these are definitely associated with poor prognosis because a lot of them have already spread at the time that we're diagnosing them. We're getting better at that. And I will talk about some tests that we're that are coming that are making it much easier to diagnose this before it is at that later stage. Um, and then of course, where that tumor is, because these tumors like to go hang out at the trigone area of the bladder, which, um, I wish that there was interactive where I could ask people if they knew why it was called the trigone, because that tri is the big (laughs) indicator of what's happening there. Cause three things happen there. Yeah. It should be the renal artery, the urethra and the ureters all come right there. Mm. I think that is. So you've got your blood supply and then everything that's coming down from the kidneys and everything that's leaving the body all in the exact same spot. So, cause it's not moving cause it's the base of your balloon, right? So usually it's because if the tumor is there, that's a, a much bigger problem. Ugh. So it's that yeah. poor prognosis. But when we're looking at dogs, because again, cats have 
whatever plan they have decided to have for this cancer. They just <laughs> go on with them, their own plan. Um, so for dogs, so sex is actually a big prognostic factor. Um, and it is more prevalent in females than it is in males. The location and extent of the tumor, obviously, is going to tell whether or not <laughs> we're going to do better. Right. The clinical stage, so that is the invasiveness and the metastatic disease. The use of chemotherapy um, and whether or not we use it, obviously, increases our prognosis for this type of cancer, like our last one that might not have been the case. So, right. Know. But this one, it does. It does actually help. And so TCC, if you've got, if they have it in both their bladder and the urethra or prostate, they've got a worse prognosis than either one alone, which would make mm. sense, right? So if it's in two places, it's going to be worse than if it's just in one. So when we are talking about what this actually is, right? So it's epithelial cells. And if you don't know what those are, they line the areas of the body that interface with the outside environment, right? So our skin, um, the urinary bladder is lined by transitional cells, which are the epithelial cells. If you were to look at these uh, on a slide and just look at your pretty little cells, they're going to be large, round to polygonal. They've got very distinct borders and they come out adhered to each other. So kind of like sheets. And they have the round oval nuclei. Um, and so when we look at those, they tend to exfoliate well, if we are doing a little cytology, but they do, they've got those sheets, unlike mm -hmm. um, mesenchymal cells that are going to be a little bit more individual. And like I said, so these are frequently located in the trigone in dogs. And so a lot of times it does result in urinary tract obstruction because if they're blocking mm -hmm. They're blo blocking it, leaving the body, but also in the trigone area, they're blocking it, even getting to the bladder as well. So they can mm. cause issues with the kidneys. Ugh, yeah. And then we talk about where they are in cats. So cats, they can either be diffuse. So of course it's going to be harder to differentiate that versus cystitis, um, yeah. versus inflammation, or it's located in the fundus or ventral bladder wall. Yep. And if it's not located in the trigone area, um, we have a better chance to be able to surgically remove it. Although if it's diffuse, that's not going to happen because removing the bladder of a cat, I can't even imagine what that would entail. And I don't think it would go very well. Oh, that would be bad. Right. Oh, cats. So a lot of these invade the muscle layers of that urinary bladder. So that's why we can't just go in and remove like the mass itself. They have to remove part of the bladder. So, and that's like, 80 to hundred percent are, are invading those muscle layers. Mm. About half of them involve the urethra and about 30% in our males, uh, actually involve the prostate as well. So a lot of times we can see, right. I know these things are, they just get so angry. Okay. So when we are looking at these tumors, we will grade them de depending on the depth of the invasion. Um, and how well differentiated they are. So like grade one is well differentiated, two is moderate, three is anaplastic. This is doing whatever it wants at that point. Two, grade two is the most common. So that's like 57 to about 80% of cases are in that grade two where they're moderately differentiated. And so when these cells start out <laughs> in our urinary bladder, uh, they can go literally anywhere. And I'm not gonna lie, in oncology, 
we don't tend to look everywhere for this cancer. Um, it does have mm. very specific spots, right? It's going to go into the wall. It likes to go into the regional lymph nodes first. So if we're yeah. looking at bladder, we're looking at those abdominal lymph nodes down there. It can absolutely go into the lungs. Like I said, the GI or the genital urinary tract. So urethra, ureters, kidneys, the uterus and prostate, um, ovaries, vagina, mammary glands, everything that is included in there. If they still have those parts, it can absolutely invade them. It can also go for the GI tract. So the intestines, a lot of times they can see it there. Um, it goes for the endocrine glands, CNS, cardiovascular. It can go up through the aorta and the heart, um, bone. So there are specific spots for bone that it can move to, um, cause we can do survey radiographs, which I'll talk about a little bit. And then like the spleen abdominal wall diaphragm. I mean, is there anything I didn't list <laughs> hair? Oh, you know what? You're right. <laughs> oh, I, but I feel like I pretty much listed everywhere. So this cancer <sighs> can be very, very widespread. That is far more uncommon, um, for it to go in other places, but keeping that in mind that it absolutely could. So if you get a random lesion somewhere and you get a sample of that and it comes back with transitional cell carcinoma, that might be metastatic and start Ugh. looking for that primary, right? Oh, that's suck. It is. It's awful. Um, but so most of them, right. So like 50% is going to met to their regional lymph nodes. Um, yeah. and uh, about, and I'm sorry, that's at the time, um, that they passed away. So at necropsy, they found that about 50% went to regional lymph nodes and 50% also were at distant sites. And that was when it was very, very advanced. So that's not usually when we're wow. diagnosing it, when we're diagnosing it, it's about 15%, um, regional lymph nodes and 15% distant sites. Distant sites are usually the lungs, not gonna lie. That's mm. usually one of the first distant sites that we see for these guys. So like I mentioned, we do like our female dogs better. Um, the ratio male to female is about one male dog to 1.7 females. Hmm. And we have a very specific breed disposition. We can see it in just about any breed. We do tend to see right. our smaller dogs when I, oh my gosh, I think I had a lab with a TCC and I was like, wait, what? So it's, it's a little more rare to see it in our big dogs, but our it's so crazy because I've seen it on a bunch of like, um, pitties. I see, yeah. I wonder if someone's doing a study now to see like, if we, if our breeds have changed at all, or if it's just yeah. because more people have them at this point. Yeah, maybe. Um, but our, our Scotties, so our Scottish Terriers, our Westies and, um, are, are some of our big ones and mm. also think low riding dogs to the lawn <laughs> yeah. where they collect all those things. But those are our big ones. I'm not going to lie. Scotties and Westies. I've seen a lot of them with those, but beagles, Shelties, yeah. um, Fox terriers. Those guys are all also on the list. Oddly enough, none of our other big cancer kids are on this list. So right, you know, it's you know. not the goldens, the, uh, Bern the Bernie's mountain dogs and all those guys. Oh right? my God. Yeah. Our smaller kids. So when they present for this, they're usually presenting to internal medicine. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, the way they usually present to us is recurrent UTIs that just aren't fixing themselves with the antibiotics. And we're like, well, there's the, but this is the reason why. <laughs> right. 
Yeah. And so, yeah, so a lot of them are the symptoms of a, a UTI, right? So difficulty urinating, um, hematuria, big one, polycuria. So they're just doing those small amounts and straining mm-hmm. to urinate, mm-hmm. but also vaginal discharge, <laughs> it's dogs. So urinary obstruction yeah. and, um, as well as incontinence because they're leaking, right? I mean, that's usually if they're struggling to urinate, they might leak a little bit. And so we do generally see them after they see internal medicine and get diagnosed with all of these things, because I am seeing them because they've been treated for UTIs because a lot of times a mask causes inflammation, it traps bacteria. So it can cause an infection. So even if they're doing a urinalysis and doing a culture, it can still show that infection because they have it. And so they might get a little bit better because they have relieved some of those symptoms, but then when they keep coming back, it's like, there's something in there causing all of this. Well, and this is one of those, this is one of those reasons why, well, it's one of the many reasons why we don't do blind sticks for urinary samples, because if I were to use an ultrasound to get my urine sample with my cystocytosis, and I see something that looks funky, I would have my doctor look at it and I wouldn't poke it because do you, please tell me you talk about this. Oh, point. I do. Oh, that's down. The okay, line. good. And that is absolutely this, my one and only This is a soapbox. <laughs> I will. I will. Oh, soapbox, soapbox the bejeebus yeah. out of this. All right, great. Cause then the, uh, you guys, there will be a soapbox on this. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, if you see something abnormal, it, the doctor a hundred percent should, should know. And so that's another reason why knowing what normal bladder looks like versus abnormal bladder. Um, because again, we want to try to catch these early. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they a hundred percent will have urinary tract infections because exactly what Danny said is the, the wall gets irregular. It doesn't empty the way it's supposed to. So not emptying the, 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 the different structure that's not nice and sleek, right? Um, it just lets that bacteria grow in there. And, and we see this all the time with, with different cancers, no matter where it is. Um, they get infected because they're not normal and healthy tissue, right? So the, the immune system isn't working appropriately where, where that tissue is. So things get infected. So just because, just because you have a positive culture that does not rule out <laughs> a bladder cancer. <laughs> okay. you're, you're not ruling it out. That is not how you rule this out. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so, especially if you have a patient with recurrent UTIs, like if you have something and, and I'm not talking like the babies, right. Like that are like, I got it. Cause that's a whole other conversation. But if you've, if you've have a dog that does not have a history of recurrent UTIs and they're older, a hundred percent go looking at that bladder to make sure it's not funky looking. Cause you know, it could be a polyp. It could be a polyp, but it could also be cancer. (laughs) So just don't assume that a urinary tract infection is going to be like the answer. (laughs) Right. And honestly, the same with cats, because we talked a lot about the dogs, but so cats, um, So uh, then getting urinary blockages, number one, that is generally a male thing. It can be female, but it is usually a male cat Mm. thing. And it's usually between the ages of, I want to say like two and six 
are the ages that that would usually show up. So if you have a cat outside of that or a female who's getting chronic UTIs, um, or even just getting one in general with no other. And we're like, I'm saying you get the positive culture, not so much just, um, cystitis, uh, to mm-hmm. be, make sure we can rule those out, but that might absolutely prompt you to say, Hmm, this 10 year old cat just suddenly got a UTI first one it's ever had in its life. That's interesting. So keeping an yeah. eye on that to see if it gets better, if it recurs, because that might be cueing us into, Oh my goodness. We might be one of those rare cats that actually has TCC. I wonder, you know, and, and we, Jordan, and I always talk about this. I wonder how many just don't get diagnosed. Oh, I'm willing to bet a lot, especially if it's yeah. a diffuse um, older yeah. cat where it causes a UTI and then it gets better. But if it's causing, um, litter box issues, so like that incontinence mm-hmm. or straining to urinate, there's euthanasia for that is a whole lot higher because people don't tolerate that, um, more so than right. some other things. So, cause they it think it's behavioral and it could be it could hundred percent be medical, right? <gasps> Which is why whenever I know anyone talks to me about uh, litter box issues, it's a, uh, you definitely, or if you've ever seen, you know, Jackson galaxy, I watch <laughs> definitely watch me some yes. of that. He always says his first thing is get him to the vet and make sure that there's nothing medical going on yeah. because so many medical problems can cause what we see as behavioral issues. So yeah, keeping yep. that in mind for our kitty friends that I bet uh, I bet more yeah. are diagnosed now than they were before. Um, oh, I'm sure. Now, not like these behemoth machines, like you get small little laptop <laughs> And ones. super grainy. You're like, what? What is that pixelated thing I'm looking at? Yeah. <laughs> For sure. And then one of the other more interesting um, things that it can present with is lameness. So these guys, I did mention survey radiographs, which again, I'm going to talk about, they can get, um, skeletal masses or, uh, the perineoplastic syndrome, hypertrophic osteopathy, which can cause lameness. So, and that's in four to 10% of cases. So that's not a small amount. Um, it's not, but like, that's more prevalent than one would think of. So yeah, you've got your chronic UTI with a limping dog. Hmm. Not potentially two separate issues. So just something to keep in mind that you could see with this. And so when we're trying to, you know, differentiate, is this actually cancer? Is this not? Um, we've said it again, like the UTIs definitely figuring out, do they actually just have a UTI? Is it chronic? Um, but it does not definitively diagnose uh no cancer, right? If we do have our UTI yeah. or even cystitis. Mm-hmm. because these guys cause inflammation. So absolutely. We want to make sure that we are looking at if we have cystitis, then there's a bunch of other bladder tumors. Like I said, these already account for a majority of them, but the other ones that we can have are squamous cells, just adenocarcinomas, rhabdomyosarcomas, um, That's a cool word. fibrosarcomas, which are about 4% of all bladder tumors. Mm-hmm. Um, lyomyosarcomas are 12% of all bladder tumors. So that's like our next Number one is if it's not transitional mm. cell carcinoma, it could be a lyomyosarcoma. Um, but then because of the other places that it can go to, because I did mention the heart pericardium, so our HSA chemodectoma, and then also benign tumors. So looking at those mm. as well. So how do we differentiate these, right? We have so many diagnoses or diagnostic. <laughs> we have so many diagnostics that we can do. <laughs> 
Um, Baselines. Right? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Baselines. Always, always, always in oncology, we want our baseline lab work for no matter what we are doing. So that includes our CBC, our chemistry, and our urinalysis. Now, I do have to say free catch urinalysis, which seems so counterintuitive when we're talking about running cultures and determining between a infection versus cancer. This is why you should not do, as Yvonne said, a blind stick cystocentesis. I used to do them, didn't know better. I'm going to go ahead. No better, do better, right? So you should always use an ultrasound because if you see something in there, you should absolutely not stick a needle in it into that bladder until you've talked with your doctor. And even then they're probably not going to stick a needle until they know what that is. We can do something called seeding. And so when you put a needle into the bladder and say you hit a tumor, those cells are not just in your needle or in your syringe, they are on your needle. And so when you are pulling your needle back through, it doesn't just poof and come back out of the animal. You have to pull it back through those layers, right? So those cancer cells would be spreading through those other layers. And since cancer cells do what they want and don't just get cleared by the body, like other abnormal cells might that don't belong there. So when you're doing a regular system, yes, you can pull, um, some urine cells, some bladder cells, all those, you could pull them through skin, but the body's going to be like, this just doesn't belong here and clear it up. Well, mm. cancer cells block the body from knowing what's happening. And so they can actually seed the tumor and create their own little tumors right straight through where you just pulled that needle. Yeah. And I feel like TCC is like one of those that likes to do that (laughs) because you don't hear that with other things, right? Like if you poke a lymph node, right. We don't Um, care about it, but TCC likes to do that. (laughs) And it's an epithelial cell tumor. So going through your skin, what is your skin? Epithelial Epithelial. cells. So think about the, the relationship to the cells of the ones that you're pulling through and what signals they might be blocking. They already know how to block that. So you want to be very careful. It does like to just grow wherever it's at. Like you heard that long list of everywhere it could go. Right. So if you pull it through there, it's going to be super excited that you just gave it a new home. Right. And (laughs) it's going to move right in. Right. (laughs) It's like, and when you're doing your free catch, because now you're scared and you're only going to do a free catch, um, you know, have it like, we have a sterile ladle at my clinic that's stainless steel. And we autoclave it every single time because ladles are so much easier than cups. <laughs> just stole my tip of the week. <gasps> I did. All right. Well, did. I mean, so I, yeah, <laughs> we'll repeat it after we're all done talking, but absolutely. So when we do a free catch, we want to make sure, especially, I mean, our females are going to be more prevalent, but we do want to make sure that we clean that area up first. Um, I was going to be gross mm. and talk about um, if you've ever had to do that as a human, but you know what, I'm just not going to go there because humans, but you do want to make sure that you are using, um, usually like saline to kind of at least wipe off the area to kind of clean it up a little bit. You could use chlorhexidine. Don't ever use alcohol. You could use that, but you also don't want to get that in your sample. So you want to be very because careful. Then it would, yeah. Cause then it would deactivate any anything that you, yeah, any infection, it might already take care of it, but you can use saline to go ahead and just make sure that the area is nice and clean. 
Especially um, if it's, especially if you're like, whoa, what is happening here? <laughs> you absolutely. might just need to do a little cleanup. <laughs> mm. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, especially if there's incontinence and stuff, like stuff dries, yeah. it's kind of gross. Poor dogs. Poor things. Yeah. It's not their fault if they have cancer. <laughs> Uh, and so, yes, we use the same thing. We have a ladle. We've got our nice stainless steel ladle and yep, we go ahead. We, um, you can either autoclave if you have gas, you can do either way, but sterilize that. We always, we usually put ours in a pack so you can just open it, yep. grab it out and don't touch the bowl. And that way one, and they're urinating, you want them to urinate a little bit first and then catch it. It's not like you usually have a choice because <laughs> right. you're trying to do that, <sighs> but a ladle is nice because it has a handle. And you don't have to like dive underneath them or have a second person who's like diving down there and getting peed on or spilling it all over the place because you're getting right under leg to kick. A ladle you can just kind of put into the stream and then you pull it back and you have it. You almost always want a second person if you're the one also holding the leash because yes, you can spill it if they decide to bolt or whatever a dog wants. Oh my God, seriously. Yeah. So two person is- My favorite is when they step in the ladle and I'm like, God, what? (laughs) Right. <laughs> I'm like, well, there is that sterile catch. <laughs> right. And so you can absolutely um, do that to also get a culture as well, because you have reduced your contaminants a lot mm-hmm. um, by kind of wiping things off and doing that, but also noting that it could be that. So with our male dogs, a little bit easier, you can use a urinary catheter. You can pass a urinary catheter to get a sample. Mm-hmm. Uh, our lovely ladies are a little bit harder to pass that in. And so those are additional steps that are generally saved unless they were going to be under anesthesia for something else. Uh, we wouldn't want to do that for them. So that free catch is going to be where it's at. And again, you can get a lot of things by Sisto. Just use the ultrasound to make sure that you're seeing a beautiful, clear bladder. Because one of the other items too, if you're using the ultrasound probe is that if the bladder is not really full, if it is, you know, getting close to empty, it can look one, like there is inflammation or that there is a mass there just based on that, the way that it looks because the it's thickness, not yeah. Always, yeah. Yeah. So keeping that in mind too, depending on how full it is, I know that we have definitely had people stay, um, like leave their pet. And so that we can let their bladder fill up to then be able to catch it or get our mm. sample. But that, I can talk about that in a little bit. <laughs> So what are we going to see on these that we would expect, right? So hematuria and proteinuria are consistent findings, mainly due to either ulceration because of the mass, Mm. um, or if there actually is an infection itself. So we, we do consistently see that, um, getting the bacteria, the positive urine culture, it's really common in cats. Um, it can also be common in dogs, but not as much. And then usually our blood work results are going to be normal unless this is a progressive disease. So if we start to see abnormalities that weren't there before in kidney values, then we also really need to look Ooh. at whether or not our ureters are being obstructed um, yep. and causing things like uremia or even polynephritis, other issues all up in our kidneys. So we have to keep an eye on those. It can clue us into extent of our disease. And there's so much imaging because we are talking about in our (laughs) abdomen, in our bladder. Um, There's a lot of imaging to be done. Abdominal ultrasound is number one, right? Internal medicine. Yes. I mean, everything gets an abdominal ultrasound in my world. So (laughs) 
I mean, most things get an abdominal ultrasound in my world. I know a lot of oncologists that do abdominal ultrasounds just because they are so prevalent. And then um, if there's abnormalities, then tapping in a radiologist or an intern (laughs) to be like, hello, I have something that is not right here. Please come help. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So, and our abdominal ultrasound is going to, you know, show us the size of our, our tumor again, this is where, um, how much urine is in the bladder. Oh my gosh. Whenever patients are coming in for anything bladder related and they have to have an abdominal ultrasound, luckily these guys are usually small dogs because we will tell people to carry them into the hospital so that they do not urinate on their way in because we want a full bladder so that we can (sighs) see it in all of its distended, beautiful glory. (laughs) Oh, so our abdominal ultrasounds, we're looking at our bladder. We want to make sure it's full. And so besides the bladder, we're going to look at obviously where the, the tumor is, um, any inflammation, they do measure it. And the same person performing the ultrasound every time matters when you're tracking these, because everyone measures a little bit differently. They might hold the probe a little bit differently. So consistency is key here for being able to track um, size changes, but we're also looking at our regional lymph nodes, um, and then any adjacent anatomical structures, right? So the colon, anywhere that it could decide that it wants to go in, looking at the kidneys, making sure that they're still normal. So all of those things are things that obviously the internist is going to go ahead and take a look at. <laughs> well, and I was going to say, and especially if there's a, like a mass in the bladder, um, and we put them on antibiotics because there is an infection, right? And like, let's say we're not doing our fun other stuff yet. If we see the the mass getting smaller, it's very possible that it's a polyp, mm-hmm. right? And so if it gets smaller, we're like, yes, but that's that's why it's really important to make sure it's the same person person right. measuring it every single time. Absolutely. And then doing our chest x-rays, um, metastasis actually has four distinct patterns with TCC. Um, so it can be that diffuse, uh, which can look a lot like old age changes. So keep that in mind, which is why we want our absolute professionals. Yes. Love my radiologist looking at my chest x-rays to go ahead and (laughs) make differentiations for us. Um, it can be a localized interstitial pattern, either multiple interstitial nodules, or those pulmonary opacities. So what we generally think of when we think of that's to our lungs. And then we also want to take them, even if there's no metastasis, we do want to just check for any other um, comorbidities, anything that's going on as far as if we are older, just checking the general health of our patient too. Uh, we can also do survey radiographs. I've talked about this a couple of times or CT scan, not going to like a CT. We could do the whole body to kind of figure out uh, if it is anywhere. And that might be a better idea if we see um, lameness already, or if we have advanced disease to get an idea of if it is anywhere else, because this can be those sub lumbar lymph nodes, um, looking at the skeleton. So the lumbar vertebrae and pelvis specifically, but it can show up like on ribs, uh, and various other bone areas. But if we are having limping or like I said, advanced disease, cause that's the more local area, but CT can definitely help. And then we do have a couple imaging techniques that are more procedural techniques. Uh, we can do our positive contrast histography or excretory urograms, which we're going to use those, um, if we have blockages and we can't figure out exactly where our blockage is. But the positive contrast histography is useful for looking for those space occupying lesions uh, with doing Uh, 
x-rays. I mean, honestly, if you don't have ultrasound or CT, this is a way that you can kind of try and figure that out using x-rays. And then we also have our cystoscopies, but I'm going to talk about that a little more at the end of our procedures <laughs> where I'm definitely tapping in Yvonne because <laughs> cystoscopy is not something oncology technicians know a whole lot about, except the results right. say there's a TCC bladder tumor. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so but, true. <laughs> oh, so true. Some of our procedures are I wouldn't say that they're outdated. They're not performed as regularly because we have newer tests available. A bladder wash is going to be one of those and also a traumatic catheterization. So the bladder wash is honestly where you're reducing your contaminants to get the best sample. Traumatic catheterization sounds terrible. It's a little less terrible than it sounds. It's just very harsh words that are coming at you, but it is, it's, what you're thinking in all honesty. I mean, it's not just shoving a catheter in there. Cause that's what I think of every time I hear this, it is, you know, placing it nice and slow, but it is using that catheter to break off cells and pieces of your tumor to be able to suck them in, to be able to submit those cells. So that's why it's traumatic. Cause you are actually causing damage to the tumor, but it's funny because I usually, when we do those, it's something that's in the urethra or in the prostate. Like those are kind of the reasons we do it because you can't really right. get good samples from those areas. Otherwise, um, other than that, like we don't, if we see something in the bladder, we're not typically doing a traumatic catheterization. I mean, I've been in oncology for a minute. And so we definitely used to do that a lot more. <laughs> I, I definitely think we used to do it a lot more, yeah. but I think because there's other stuff, but um like, and we still do it because, you know, it is, it is relatively inexpensive. You can usually do it with just some sedation, like, you know, a pain medication. You don't have to fully anesthetize them. Whereas like other stuff, you're anesthetizing your patient. So I think, I think that's another reason why, why to use it. Right. And in all honesty, it was because we were going to get cytology that way, which is how we diagnose most cancers. Unfortunately. TCC is just its own special friend and seeing, um, abnormal cells on cytology is actually not definitively diagnostic for TCC. So 30% of all TCC can be diagnosed via cytology, 30%. And that is either on urine sediment, um, cytology it does go up if it's invasive into the muscle because that releases different cells. So it's 90% if it's up into that musculature. Uh, but most of them honestly, but like, so that's 30% of like the emerging, I would think. Right. Cause mm -hmm. if it's more invasive, you're further along, which right. That sucks. <laughs> and so, so that's 30% of those. If it's any other type of tumor, so like our mesenchymal tumors, those exfoliate awful. It is just so poor. And so they're very rarely diagnosed by doing a cytology on any sample that you get that way. So um, keep that in mind when I get to my amazing special tests that we do, because thank goodness <laughs> that these exist, because knowing that, yeah, so what we used to do, honestly, so knowing that it was 30%. 
we used to instigate symptomatic treatment. So, you know, doing our antibiotics and such Mm. to see if things improved. And if they weren't improving, then it was a presumptive diagnosis. And we treated based on the fact that all of our things say that it could be this. So we're going to treat it like this. So keeping that in mind, whereas now we can get a more definitive diagnosis, Uh, a biopsy is still going to be the best way. Unfortunately, with TCC, there's not great ways to get those biopsies outside of cystoscopy. Uh, and because we don't, if we go in with a needle or true cut, anything like that, we risk all of that seeding again. So we don't Mm. do that that way. Um, if it's not in the trigone area, we can surgically remove it and get the biopsy that way, which is great. Uh, -hmm. so it is possible to do that. Um, and so when we do the catheter biopsy techniques, that can tell us about 73% of our tumors can get diagnosed that way, which is absolutely great. However, inflammation can still mess up everything. So inflammation can secondary to that either necrosis, infection, ulceration can result in false negatives. So keeping that in mind when things are really inflamed. Yeah. Cause you want to get the, you want to get the tumor cells, not the junk that's hiding the tumor cells. Like if that makes sense. Um, but I'm totally going to tap you in on cystoscopy now because that is a <laughs> great way to get a sample that I do not participate in. <laughs> yeah. So cystoscopy and, and this is, I mean, you're doing this with an anesthetized patient. Um, and it depends on the size of your cystoscope, right? Like there are definitely limitations, um, different, like, I think, um, I think around us, I think UC Davis is the only one that has the teeny tiny one that can go into like cats. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we do not have that as, as all sorts of specialty. Um, but you, you know, there's, there's the flexible scope versus, um, you know, the, the rigid scopes, um, rigid scope is going to be more for females. The flexible is going to be more for males. The problem with that is, you know, how, how small does your scope go? (laughs) So, um, so they're, they're anesthetized and then, um, we can go in, uh, and look. And so it's, you know, it's a messy procedure because there's fluids flowing and all that fun stuff. Cause we have saline that goes through and then we try to look at all the parts um, try to see if there's any abnormalities. They are pretty cool because um, sometimes you can catch like the urine spurting into the bladder from the ure- ure- ureters, which is really cool. You see this like jet of urine. You're like, Hey, there's the ureter. So that's kind of cool. Um, I will say my one story with a cystoscopy. Oh, um, so she you know, I'm not even sure she actually has cancer or it was just a horrible infection for forever that didn't get treated. Mm -hmm. Um, but we did the cystoscopy and she just had like palm fronds. It looked like palm fronds in her bladder and urethra. It was crazy. Like we had a hard time getting in there. Um, and she was partially obstructed. She was a German shepherd. Um, so we placed a urinary catheter, um, because of the inflammation, we were like, you know, we traumatized it. We took a biopsy, all this stuff. We need to make sure she could pee afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, 
This is why 100% of the time they should always, 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 always have an e-collar on with a urinary catheter. Oh, no. Because uh, she decided to chew the Foley out and left part of it in her bladder. So she got to have her second scope and we had to scope out a chunk of Foley out of her bladder. Which, I mean, it was a good thing because um, that's how she got, you know, her biopsy samples. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that dog. But um, yeah, cystoscopy. I mean, it's, the problem is, is if you have, if you have a tumor, right, that's blocking, mm-hmm. that's where it becomes problematic because, you know, you ideally want to be able to get all the way into the bladder, but sometimes you just can't um, and you get your, your your sample that way um which is sometimes difficult but you can also culture things because we try to do it aseptically and yeah that's i remember we had someone uh it was a labrador oh my gosh her name was minnow she was freaking adorable and so she came (laughs) to us from internal medicine because she had a urethral tumor Mm. and i remember reading the record and i was said wait a minute this this isn't tcc he's like no this is lymphoma. Yes. Because lymphoma does what lymphoma wants, but so much better prognosis in all honesty. She responded to treatment. She lived for many years, actually. We cured her. So it was just crazy. Yes. Lymphoma can go anywhere it wants. And it was hanging out in her urethra. We were pretty like, I am was like, oh yes, but she's big enough to be able to have cystoscopy not difficultly because she was a big Labrador. Right. That's usually our tiny kids. Um, <laughs> and so when we talk about our, our old school methods, like getting our cytology besides cytology, the, the other thing that we used to do, uh, and I say, this is our old standard. It was the bladder tumor antigen test. Did you ever send those out with your oh. analysis? Oh, okay. So there was a specific test that they could do and it was, it would measure a glycoprotein complex. It was 85 to 90% sensitive for detection of TCC, which sounds great, right? Like, why is that the old standard? 85 to 90%. Not specific though. Exactly. So up to almost 80% could have false positive results. And that was if they had hematuria, proteinuria, hematuria was the big one. So if there was blood, which there almost is in most of these, then it was going to, it could be falsely positive. And so this one, we didn't really want to. I bet you that's why we didn't do it. Cause we were like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) ours, we used to put it on there as just one of those additional tests because we didn't have our new standard. Our new standard is the cadet graph test. If you have not heard of this and you work in internal medicine or oncology, please look it up and please determine who you need to talk to about using this. Can I, can I tell you a quick little story about it? Yes. So in our, so we have a Cubex machines that like have all our medicine and stuff and these live in there because they're expensive and you know, we don't want to lose the, the, the little cups, but for the longest time it was labeled wrong on the Cubex. It was, it was labeled as barf. So I thought it was the barf test. And I was like, that's, very strange so i just i still call it the barf test because it's just funny but it's brass as well you should right (laughs) awesome so this test oh this was game changing 
Onco, I am tech life changing. It's great. So this test catches 85% of tumors. And so they have a mutation in the gene called BRAF which is why it's called that. And so this can be t- detected in the urine before tumors even visible. Yeah. Um, it's not available for cats. I will say that we don't have that not yet. yet. This is dogs. Um, and it, this is all free catch urine. You need mm-hmm. at least 30 mLs. So it's rough because these are your small kids most of the time. And so a lot of them, when they presented, they are straining, they're releasing small amounts. It's not a very full bladder. So a lot of times we have to keep these kids uh, in the hospital for the day. We'll have them drop off and we'll catch it throughout the day. Sometimes we'll have like a mat in their cage. So even if they pee, it's on the bottom because contaminants aren't a huge issue in all honesty, because we're not looking yeah, at it's just pretty cool. We're looking for that gene mutation. So even owners could do this. If you have a really good owner's great at like catching it and being able to get it, you could send this just keep in mind it's expensive. So you want to be very careful who you would send this home with. Well, we, pre, we charge for it ahead of time and then send the cups home. Cause gotcha. we're like, we're like, these are expensive. To, like the tests, like the kit themselves is like expensive. So we usually pre-charge and then, um, just, you know, say, okay, over the next 24 hours, do your best. Right. Yeah, a lot <sighs> of times we'll keep them in the hospital. I'm not going to lie. We've done some sub Q fluids to even promote the kidneys. From <laughs> right? the You're like, have a lot of water. <laughs> Oh yeah. yeah. We will tag team this with our internal medicine team. Like we know someone between us will keep checking on that patient to get yeah. them out and check multiple times a day. We will absolutely recheck with the ultrasound be like, do they have it in there? And they're just hiding it from us. Right. If it's a male, we will catheterize to get the sample. If we realize they've got a big enough bladder just to be able to get our sample and get them out the door, if they won't pee for us outside. Yeah. <laughs> so Um, but it's fantastic. 85%. It's such a huge deal. So that's why we don't do the old standard with all the false positives, um, anymore, because this can tell us amazingly, we don't have to use needles. We don't have to do traumatic catheterization, any of those things. We just got to catch the urine and be able to send it out. And I will say before we go too far, make sure your owners and make sure anyone who is going to handle these 100%, 1000% knows, do not put the sample in the fridge. Mm. Correct. Because if they put it in the fridge, we cannot submit it. So this is extremely important. If you send it home with an owner, make sure your entire front staff or anybody who could potentially be handling it understands to not put it in the fridge, label it very clearly do not put in the fridge. Um, because we've had that multiple times where they're like, it's a urine sample. It must go in the fridge. And you're like, no, (laughs) do not put it in the fridge. Right. Oh, um, I know. And for a lot of these, um, if we are even suspecting it with our chronic UTIs, man, we will, we'll collect this at the same time as sending out for our standard urinalysis and culture. And then we'll send out for the breath as well, mm. or we'll at least have it ready to go. As soon as those results come back to be able to send it, they don't have to come back in, do it all over again. Um, so we would be all ready to go for that. Uh, there is a newer test. I just realized it's the, uh, it's the plus 
We could have breath. Yes. Plus. And so, like I said, 85%, right? So the plus test can detect about two thirds of cases that are missed by the breath test alone. So yeah. these are not that you don't just want to jump to the plus test. You want to stick with the, the original. And then mm-hmm. if you are still, if really you're like, I really, that, really it. think this is it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I need a test to tell me that it is definitively, but I, I know, I know in my heart of hearts, this is TCC. <laughs> uh, you can go ahead and send that one out and confirm it. So now that we've gone over all of those things for how we actually diagnose this, because it's a lot to go through to figure it out because we do have to rule out all of the non-cancer items that can cause all of these problems, especially because our patients can't talk and tell Mm -hmm. us any of these things. So how are we going to treat it? So like I said, surgery is absolutely an option if it's not in the trigone area. So if we mess with that trigone area, we end up causing more problems than we are curing. So that is our urethra, um, and all of our vasculature is right there. And so margin for error is very small. We're usually not going to get it right. Cause it's usually invaded into the wall itself. And so being able to remove it is not possible literally anywhere else in that bladder. Absolutely. I get really, really excited. I'm not gonna lie. I, it's, it's really, <laughs> it's sad how excited I get whenever I see that the bladder tumor is somewhere else because I'm doing like my happy dance going, oh, we can cure them. We can cure right. them as long as it hasn't metastasized anywhere else. So if we've caught it early enough that it is truly still just there. That's amazing because that surgery, we can remove the entire tumor and they absolutely can be cured. Mm-hmm. We don't have to do follow-up anything, which is great. Um, there are palliative procedures where they can do partial cystectomies or tube cystotomies. I don't, that's not really something we do a lot in the veterinary world. Um, there's also stents. There are. Yes. If it is blocking Ugh. to give them more time stents. Um, I know, we I don't know a lot of, of <laughs> right. We do because it doesn't stop the disease and anything else that we're going to do doesn't buy them a lot of time. No. And so it's expensive. It's uncomfortable. It just, for yeah. me, the negatives outweigh the positives on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is something that is far more specialized. I know in my areas, usually the universities are the ones that would even offer that. Um, if anyone does it in the area. So, yeah, we've, we've done, we've done stents, like not super frequently because again, we try to talk them out of it. Um, just because yeah, it doesn't stop the tumor. Right. It just, it just opens the urethra. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Am I saying the right one? Yeah. It usually just opens the urethra up for, for now until the tumor grows through the stent and blocks again. So it's, it's, yeah, it's not a great option. It's not. And, and so when we talk about survival for these beyond our curative ones, so we're talking about any other type of treatment or surgery. Remember I said a year is about what we're going to get, no matter what we do, what other we do partial surgeries, radiations, chemo, whatever treatment we're doing, we're probably not looking at past a year. So keep that in mind when we're talking about any 
life-saving measures that we think we're going to go for. So doing a stent, still looking at only that if anything else works. Um, and so with like debulking alone or that partial cystectomy, um, they could look at a year survival rate in up to a little more than half. And so we're still stopping at that year, right? It's, it's rough. And most of them, the mean survival rate is 86 to 142 days. So not even close to that year. Oh my God. Like a month and a half to three months. Mm. Yes. So taking time out for a stent just to get a couple extra, that's not going to get you more. Some of these other things, I mean, it could, mm, I don't even want to give a positive there. One of the things that we've done to see if we could get other treatment to work, honestly, is we have placed catheters, urinary catheters mm-hmm. so that, and taught, and I've, we've sent some home where we have them yeah. kind of like rigged up and taught an owner how to deal with them because in all honesty, they weren't going to cause more harm than good from it at this point. Right. Um, just to see if we could get any of the other treatments. So like chemotherapy medications to work to reduce that blockage so that they could get through. So we have looked at doing that in the past, um, that as a, as a palliative treatment to, it's kind of like the, um, I always think of like the IMHAs where you just keep or ITPs and you keep giving them blood transfusions, just waiting for your drugs to work. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's a similar similar thought. Yeah. And I've definitely seen that where they've had a urinary catheter and they've gone home, but but again, you know, that's a, you have to know your client and whether Mm -hmm. or not they can handle that and be appropriate. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we look at our other treatments. Um, again, these are going to be for dogs Mm -hmm. because cats. So one of the biggest things that we look at, that's not chemotherapy is paroxicam or NSAID usage. So these are going to be our COX-2 specific ones. Paroxicam is the one that was studied the most intensively, but they have seen a lot of other, um, NSAIDs behave the same way. Mm. So these are our COX-2 inhibitors because, so this is why they work ish, um, is that, so COX-2 is not expressed by normal urinary bladder epithelium. However, it is expressed with primary metastatic bladder tumors in dogs. Hmm. And so that overexpression is what makes them able to start to invade everything and keep growing. Interesting. So if we're using an inhibitor, we are inhibiting that. So that is Um, so if we were to use paroxicam alone and they are, they're given it daily. And so we absolutely have to take into account whether or not they can handle an NSAID, right? We got to watch our renal values. If they yep. aren't, if they're already affected by the tumor, then we get the like, well, let's see what happens because if they're working, those values should actually still go down. And then if you suddenly see a spike, you'd have to figure out, is it because of tumor or is it because of drugs? Mm-hmm. Um, and then also any other medications that they might be on for any reason. So, you know, not mixing that with steroids is going to be a big one. But when paroxicam alone, we get um, median survival time of 180 to 195 days. So that's more than six months. So if we're looking at a year total, no matter what, most of these guys make it, the the back end is six months. So, I mean, why not? That's impressive. Right? Right? So, um, and about about 5% get a complete remission and up to 20% had like a partial remission. 
So it is really effective for this when it is effective. So that is why I say like, sometimes we can place that urinary catheter. Cause if we at least get peroxicam going, we could see improvement if we're going to and be able to then remove that catheter and they can have some pretty good quality time. Um, and the reduction in tumor volume was definitely associated with apoptosis and just reducing all of those beautiful things released by the Cox tube. So <laughs> as long as we get that down. Um, but a lot of places they are using, you know, our Daracoxib, Viracoxib, um, Robenicoxibs, those are being used as well. But like I said, Proxcam was just the one that was most studied and it is, um, easy to get compounded as well. Yeah. So that's because these are usually the smaller dogs keep that in mind. So yeah. a lot of times Proxcam, it's a human medication. So we'll get it compounded to whatever specific size that that dog needs. And then we can look at chemotherapy as well. Um, it is recommended systemic mainly because TCC can travel all over the body. And so right. the chances of it metastasizing are pretty high. The most common treatment that everybody goes for, um, or uses in TCC is Proxicam with mitoxantrone. So bringing out our beautiful blue drug. So our mean survival time is 350 days. So this is where we're getting about our year with these together, uh, about 35% respond to this, about 2% complete remission, 33% partial remission. Mm. Um, some of these have been combined with radiation, just so you know, so a palliative radiation, mm. not a full course, um, mean survival time with that is actually less than just the <laughs> chemotherapy and drug alone. So it's not entirely known that it's going to be beneficial. So mm sticking with chemotherapy and proxicam at this point. Um, now, because we are oncology and like I said, 35% respond to that, we always have our backups, right? So if they're part of that 65% that's not responding to this, we have other things that we can try, right? So that's when we pull out our carboplatin. And this one has the high, we always want to mix it with proxicam because if you don't, it actually doesn't work very well. Hmm. Um, right? It's only when they're combined. So there's a higher remission rate. So if they're going to respond to this, they'll go into remission 50 to 70%. However, there's a bigger potential for uh, side effects and then just overall shorter survival times. Hmm. So they're going to respond. They're going to respond really well. It's just not going to be for as long. That makes sense. Got it. Yeah. So they can have a really, really great taste, but you know what, if that also doesn't work, don't, don't worry, but wait, we've got more. <laughs> we can also then turn to doxorubicin combined with cyclophosphamide instead of proxicam. Uh, this has a mean survival time of about 259 days, so 260, uh, which is not, it's not nothing to sneeze at. Uh, it's still pretty good. I will tell you, we had, I had this, I loved her. Her name was Wendy. She was the, a Westie and she always wore pink. And so I put those like bright pink bandages on her anytime she got chemo, which of course turned her fur pink. Right. But, <laughs> oh my gosh. Like we went through the Proxcam mitoxantrum. We went through our carboplatin. Oh gosh. She got so much carboplatin. This dog lived for quite a while. I'm not going to lie. Like she made it past her one year and then we moved on because like we did carbo for a while, she went into complete remission and then of course came back and we got her onto doxorubicin, which I have, I don't think ever used again in a TCC case. However, it put her into absolute complete remission. 
Oh, wow. Like there was none. She came in for something on ER and without even thinking, they did a cysto on her to get urine for something. I don't remember something else was going on with her. And I remember coming in going, I'm sorry, does this say cysto? And I have a great relationship with my criticalist. And I was like, did you cysto my cute little bladder cancer patient? And he went, oh my gosh. He's like, there wasn't anything on ultrasound. I was like, you're so lucky. She's in remission. <laughs> oh so, my God. Because there was nothing there. So he, it didn't even cross his mind when they, they was doing it that, mm-hmm. So, but she even, so dexorubicin can cause cardio um, issues. And so we oh, right. yeah. use dexorubicin because we went past, they have a lifetime limit. I'm going a little bit more into the chemo than I plan to, because we've got that whole one coming up on chemo, but um, there's a lifetime limit for dexorubicin because it is cardiotoxic. Mm. And we blew past it mainly because we actually started doing echocardiograms with her. Um, every couple treatments and we use dexrozoxane, which is a cardioprotectant with every treatment. Dexrozoxane is insanely expensive. Um, and, but since she was a smaller dog, we actually got it compounded for her. Um, and then we would have it shipped to the clinic and I would, so we would give both drugs at the same time and cardiotoxicity was not what the issue ended up being at the end of her life. I will tell you, so she was in remission for quite some time with this. It was so amazing. Um, and then she ended up coming out of remission. She was old at that point. She was also cute old little Wesley. Gosh, this dog, she was fabulous for all of her treatments. These were a lot of drugs that go IV. So she was fantastic, but so yes, that can actually work. And then cisplatin can be used not in cats because it splats cats does not go well with cats. Um, we don't use it a lot in dogs because this does, it is pretty toxic. Um, and that's why we use carboplatin instead using cisplatin alone though, got them a means survival time about 130 to 220 days, 71% overall response rate when it's combined with peroxicam. However, almost 90% of dogs have renal toxicity especially mixing both of them. <laughs> so, but the thing with cisplatin is there was a 0% complete remission. Um, but those that did respond, their survival time was significantly longer. Um, and they could respond over a year, but hmm. like I said, cisplatin is a very rough chemotherapy to use and it's generally not. And even mixing it with the proxicam makes it that much worse. So it's, it's not really used. We stick with our, our carboplatin and hope to God our mito works because we like our mito. <laughs> but we could do radiation. So radiation is absolutely, um, an option. It's so it's the intraoperative radiation, which they can do more readily in humans. There are places that are starting to be able to do that with the cyber knife and the stereotactic radiations where they can do it intraoperatively. Um, I have seen it. It's not common yet, but they can get a means survival time of 12 to 15 months. So just keeping that in mind, like as things progress and medicine keeps getting better and better, we are going to be able to see uh, better responses to things like that. Uh, the biggest thing to keep in mind are the complications. So we do need to let our, our owners know that they can have some ureteral stenosis, 
um, urinary incontinence, cystitis, and strangeria. Those are the big ones. That incontinence, um, my little Wendy, she wore diapers. <laughs> so like, that was mom would bring me an extra diaper and she would, yeah. oh gosh, trying to prevent that dog from urinating on her ultrasound days took oh. an army. We had to, <laughs> there were very specific steps that we took the whole time to make sure that that didn't happen because of those diapers. So, <laughs> so funny. It's pretty amazing. Um, so when we talk to our clients, uh, this is a big one. Internal medicine starts it off with all yep. of the huge conversations about the what ifs and what it could be and what is that. So we get to then talk to them about once they got the determination of cancer, what next, right? Although I'm not going to lie, Avon, I'm sure you've had a lot of those conversations because if they don't want to do treatment, a lot of right. times they won't come see us and they'll yeah. stick with you. That's so, so true. Right. So at home, like if they're not going to treat what that continuation of symptoms are. So if they're not blocked yet, letting them know what blocked is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, and that it is honestly, if it keeps going, if they're having the stranger of polycuria, those types of things, it will happen eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, and then treating those infections and the inflammation to make them comfortable. Luckily, if you're sneaking in paroxicam to decrease that inflammation, you might be also giving them treatment. So yeah. that's not a bad thing. Um, I think of lymphoma, we say like steroids, like they should definitely get steroids. They get a month, even paroxicam alone, they can get six months. That's a yeah. good thing. Yeah. Um, and just going over what the symptoms of that blockage is, especially urinary versus fecal, because straining to urinate sometimes people think is diarrhea because that's true. If they're leaking urine or they're doing small amounts all the time, sometimes they think it's because it's diarrhea. So making sure they really understand what the difference looks like. And then going over our post-surgical complications, incontinence is a big one because we're messing with that bladder wall, right? So it's ability to contract and getting some acne, those kind of things that can absolutely happen. So I feel like these kids, even without surgery, sometimes just have incontinence. Cause it's like, you know, it's like their, their bladder never fully empties and it's like, they're just kind of leaking when they relax. And so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, teaching them about diapers and how do I keep them from not eating their diaper because we're dogs (laughs) and that's what we do. And that's when like, honestly, onesies and such come into play, um, t-shirts to keep them out of that area. They can live great lives with diapers for sure. Like it's all getting them used to it. Now, if you have a dog that's going to chew it off and won't tolerate ones, your e-collar, then that's the quality of life discussion that you need to have. Like, is that person Mm -hmm. cool if you're in just leaking all over the place and cleaning it up or, (laughs) or that's the line in the sand. I Mm -hmm. mean, that could be for some patients, right? Like not everyone would do all the diaper stuff. I'm not going to lie. Like that's a lot of work because you have to watch Mm -hmm. out for urine scalding. So yeah. So you, then you have to counsel them if they're doing diapers, those are the type of things that they have to watch out. They have to constantly check it and change it. That urine scald is real, that they're going to have to keep them clean, um, to make sure that they're not causing additional issues just to keep them around. So, um, that is a very serious conversation to have with these guys. It, pre post-surgery, 
um, you have to have that conversation multiple times so that they aren't surprised by it because if they decide that they want to go forward with yeah. surgery. So yeah, so say they, okay, I'm going to do some type of surgery or procedure. And then this happens. We want to make sure that they're prepared and they knew that that could happen. Um, well, cause I think sometimes people think, oh, if I do surgery, everything's going to be fixed and it's going to be great and no problems. And you're like, that, that is not what we said. <laughs> we said they just wouldn't have the cancer. <laughs> No, surgery fixes everything. <laughs> I mean, oh. don't tell the surgeons out there. They believe right? that. <laughs> um, and then chemo safety, if they're on chemotherapy, this is going to be a big one because depending on which chemotherapy you're using, although it is most of them, it's excreted in urine. And so if they mm. are using diapers, if they are um, mm. incontinent, wherever they're laying, that's going to be a big one with these guys, because all of these drugs are excreted in urine for at least a day sometimes up to, oh, 21 days. So oh, yeah. So it could be a permanent, like, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. If they're incontinent, diaper is going to be the way to go. If they're on chemotherapy, it's just, then they're going to have to treat that as trace chemotherapy waste stuff. So they're always going to have to make sure that they're wearing gloves and being very careful and treating that area of the dog that that urine might touch as contaminated. Mm. So big deal there, especially with bathing not being, shouldn't be spraying it during certain times. So that's a a really Mm. big conversation to be had if they're on chemotherapy. And so, but when we look at our long-term goals though, like, right. The curable ones, happy dance, jumping around the room. Can't help myself. If I'm holding, it's even worse because then I want to do the happy dance, but I'm holding the patient and, uh, (laughs) ultrasound don't appreciate you making the dog do the happy dance. I'm just gonna let you know. (laughs) Um, but everything else is about a year or less with all other treatment options. Now, keeping in mind though, yes, it's less than a year. And that sounds very sad and dire and not great. Their quality of life can be fantastic in that Mm -hmm. year because they can work on the tumors. They just don't make them live much longer. So, um, for those people who want to do, I always say this, those bucket lists or just aren't ready or wanted to get them through to see, you know, the kids come home from college or a holiday or something. Perfect. Let's start some kind of short-term treatment, give them great quality of life for that time period and figure out like what you said, what our line in the sand is so that we can be prepared when we start to see it. And then you can also refer these guys to hospice care because they can manage some of like, if they're doing paroxicam only, yes, they're, they're referring that can absolutely handle that as well. If they're used to it and are totally comfortable with it for sure. Because then even if you're not monitoring with ultrasounds of resurgence of symptoms that aren't able to be taken care of with antibiotics and such that would start to tell you anyway. So even if you're not monitoring them, um, or I love hospice cares because they can also Mm. do proxicam, but then if they seem uncomfortable, if they're squatting, but they still seem okay. Otherwise they can add in pain medication and have those end of life talks with the owners, uh, honestly better than so many people that I know. I love to be able to refer them because even if it's six months, they are still the ones constantly preparing them for that moment. So yeah. Uh, and then my big caution, do not FNA these. Don't FNA. Please don't. Uh, and don't accidentally no FNA one doing a Cisto. <laughs> yeah. Right. Don't do it. If it looks weird, ask your doctor to come look at it. Absolutely. Just 
say no. I had someone once I was in, I can't remember what I was doing in the hospital. I was not actually working with the oncology team, uh, but they needed someone, a technician to do a cysto on an animal. And so I was like, oh, absolutely. Come on down. I can do this. I put, uh, do we know about the big mass that's right there? And they're like, Mm. oh yeah, that's why it's here. I was like, no, I won't be doing this then. We need to free catch that. Let's set up over here. Yeah. That's my favorite where I'm like, no, (laughs) this is a hard no. I'm not poking this. Right. And if you don't know what a mask looks like on an ultrasound, have someone teach you before you start doing ultrasound guided systems. Mm. One of the biggest things is urine is anechoic and it's black or dark. Um, should look like and, a pretty round circle, right? That I I'm doing this and you can't see me. I'm making a circle with my hand and fingers. <laughs> um, but it's, it is, it's black. So it's anechoic. So urine is very dark. If you see sparklies in there, you might not want to poke that because crystals can look a little like sparkly when they're in there. So you would you want could to poke a, you could, you could poke with crystals. Depends on what they're there for. If you don't know it, definitely mm. verify with somebody. <laughs> I'm thinking our emergency cases where they may or may not be blocked and there's crystal. Oh, be uh, careful uh, with uh, those. <laughs> yes. Like internal when, medicine and oncology. That's a very different thing. Cause they're usually not coming in because they're blocked with those. So not that's true. quite the same. Um, but our masses tend to, if you see them, they are a lighter gray, right? Because they're not pure liquid. They're a, a denser mass. So they're not going to be this beautiful, round, dark circle. So if you're seeing anything that looks like that, always verify it might not be a mass, but until you're comfortable looking at that, if you see anything that looks like a lighter gray versus that dark and it's around the circle, it's not a pretty circle, double check, have, have a DVM check that for you. Um, yeah. Or a senior technician, if someone is far more used to doing them until you get used to doing them. So I guess that's tip of the week number two on what that looks like (laughs) on an ultrasound. Uh, My other tip of the week is going back to what Yvonne does, right? Your free catch, sterilize that metal ladle. Use the ladle. Oh my gosh. Don't use, oh gosh, bowl. Or I mean, you can, you can absolutely, we have sterilized. I feel like it depends on the dog. Like some, you know, like (laughs) I think of like a Corgi where you're like, I can't get the ladle under that. I mean, are you going to have more success with the bowl though? No, probably not. Right. That's, I, I remember the first time, my first free catch was an awful situation. This was a very, very long time ago. And it's when I lived in Michigan and there was a lot of freaking snow. It was winter mm. and someone of course was having issues. So I had to like free catch it. This dog squatted on top of snow, right? So there's nowhere for me to go. And so I attempt to get in there snow sloshes into the bowl and then the dog kicks it and I was like I don't even know what to do with this I got in a lot of trouble that was not a a happy place for me to be uh but I was like I'm not sure what success would have looked like in this situation (laughs) (laughs) I've I've had I've had because we have like tan bark stuff and dirt so it's like Mm. tan barky I've had tan bark in there I've had dog feet in it it's like catch I hate I hate free catches I am not good at them. Something usually goes horribly wrong. (laughs) But to go along with that free catch, if if you're going to do the free catch and and sterilatal, I always go out with my sterilatal 
and like a 12 mil syringe just like in my pocket because I will suck it out of the ladle as soon as possible so I don't lose my sample because I've also lost my sample. Yes. So that's tip number three. <laughs> right. When you dump it on yourself and you're like, wow, the dog did not pee on me, but I definitely just dumped that down myself. Uh. <laughs> so yes, that's, that is a great add on to the tip for sure. Yes. <sighs> Lots of tips this week. <laughs> and now for the question of the week. I mean, I guess a good question would be, um, especially when we get our younger patients is what would be another cause for chronic UTIs? Ooh, we did touch on it. We just didn't say what it was. I didn't because there are a couple, um, especially in females that can cause some Mm -hmm. chronic UTIs that we would want to make sure didn't exist first because that's a great, I am question. So the question of the week is, um, a differential diagnosis list for our younger patients because we're not looking for, I mean, it could still be TCC, but hopefully not. (laughs) What are, what are some of our options ahead of time? that they're seeing I am for. And then cool. So what I love to point out for additional resources, we know I love eClinPath and I know you love Mm. eClinPath, but Mm -hmm. vsso.org is a veterinary study surgical oncology. Oh, okay. It has amazing information about mean standard times, treatments, prognosis, his, all of those things. It's only on the cancers that are surgical, but it's amazing. It's so great. I get so much of my information from them. Um, that I, I didn't even discover it honestly until about two years ago. And I wish that I had prior to that. So if you've never heard of them, definitely take a look because it's written in a very concise bullet points information about lots of cancers. And in nice. uh, veterinary medical terms, not not so much for owners. So, Phew. <laughs> right. cool, sweet. <sighs> yeah, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. So, all right. Anything else we need to cover on TCC for the week? No, I feel like I definitely hammered all that home. Feel free to cut <laughs> any of that out. No, you're Ooh. you're good. You're good. I mean, it's a lot of information, and I think this is one that. It's not super frequent, but I think, I, I still think it gets underdiagnosed. So, you know, and especially like the catching it early. So. Right. And I'm, well, well, I feel, uh, I feel that like one. once you get, like, if you have a Scotty or a Westie, like once they hit a certain age, just like how we do, um, uh, <laughs> the freaking gene tests with the like Aussies and st- or board, you know, like. Or taking chest x-rays every so often, start doing cadet breath tests. Yeah. If you've got one of those, just because if it can detect it before the mass is there, oh my gosh, I don't, I don't even know if they've come up with what you would start as a treatment to prevent it. But I know if we start finding it soon enough, we'd be able to come up with a prevention for it. Hmm. Interesting. Or at least a, hmm. like if you started proxicam early, I don't know. I can't even speculate because it doesn't, I know. Yet, what would I do with that? I'd be like, all right, it's positive. <laughs> right. I mean, they have it. Like, all right, 
Interesting. Hmm. 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 All right, everybody. Well, um, have a wonderful week. Hopefully you keep getting your learn on. I think we, next week we're talking mast cell tumors. Mast cell tumors. <laughs> All right. Cool. Well, thanks, Danny. And then I'll see you guys next week. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. <laughs>。for listening to today's episode of the Internal Medicine for Vet Techs podcast. If you like what you heard, we'd love for you to share with someone you think might enjoy the podcast, and make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Want to give us a boost? Please leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, and we'll be sure to say thank you. Find out everything about us at internalmedicineforvettechs.com. Talk to you next week. Bye.